Hi, listeners. This is Sarah, and I'm here today with some very special guests, my co-producers, Jen and Rachel. What's up, everyone? You're all in for it with this episode because it's our season one finale, and we're going to be talking to you about a bar that's actually right down the street from us right now, Ginger's in Brooklyn, New York. So this episode has been a long time coming, hasn't it? It yeah. definitely has. Um, yeah, so when we left for our road trip to visit all the bars um, last September, uh, we didn't know if Ginger's was going to reopen ever again. It was still closed from the, from the pandemic, and uh, there had been no announcement, no information as to if or when Ginger's was ever going to come back. We would walk by it all the time on the street and just peek in the windows. And we took like sad face pictures under the awning. And we were like, what, what, where are you? Like, come back to us. But then uh, I think it was like two weeks after we got back from our trip, there was like a post on Instagram being like, Ginger's is going to reopen. And, and we hadn't really been sure how we were going to end the season until we heard about that. And then we were like, okay, yes, home bar, home bar finale. So that's what we're doing right now. So, Jen, you definitely have the longest relationship with Ginger's of any of us. I mean, you've yeah. lived you've lived down the street from it for, like, how many years? I've lived very close to Ginger's for the last – when did it open? What, what year? 2000. Okay, so I wasn't here yet. Well, I wasn't in the area yet. But I've, I've lived at least uh, over a decade and a half very close to Ginger's. It's definitely my home lesbian bar. So what's it like when you go there? Like, what do you do when you go there? Well, there was always a jukebox. So like a lot of times the bartenders would be playing music, but most of the time you'd put like 20 bucks in the jukebox and basically soundtrack the whole night or as, as much money as you put in, you could soundtrack with you and your friends. So do you have do you have any like stories that stand out to you about going to Ginger's? So I play softball in the Prospect Park Women's Softball League. And so after our games, we would go in there. And back in the day, Ginger's was like cubbyhole vibes. It was always jam packed. It was like, you know, you made your way through the door and just to get to the back pool table, you know, you kind of had to inch your way through a huge crowd, especially Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday nights. Um, and then every year they always had a really huge St. Patrick's Day party um, or on the Saturday around St. Patrick's Day. And it was like the place to be um, on a weekend. So for this episode, we're going to be doing things a little bit differently, as you can already probably tell. Obviously, you're hearing from all three of us, which is not something we normally do. And we're basically going to be separating this story into two acts. So in act one, we'll hear from Sheila, the owner of Ginger's, about growing up in Ireland, moving to the U.S., and eventually opening the bar. And then act two is going to be the story of a Ginger's regular named Ruthie. So we really wanted to, you know, show you the bar through the eyes of these two women that have been so essential to the Ginger's community. So starting with Sheila, Rachel and I ended up visiting her in New Jersey at her lake house, which was definitely a surprising experience to say the least. I'm so bummed I could not go. Especially after talking to you guys when you got back, I just knew I missed out on a very... A very special afternoon. And it just, you just would have like fit in. I know. Like a glove there. I really did not know what to expect of Sheila going into this process. I was very excited to meet her because 
I feel like she is such a staple of the community, but she's also kind of mysterious, I feel 100%. like. A hundred percent. I was just going like, to say, like, you knew who she was, you recognized her, but she was like really mysterious or like untouchable kind elusive. of. Yeah, elusive. Yeah, elusive. kind of an elusive presence yeah, for at sure. Ginger's. So when she was like, can you come out to my house in New Jersey to interview me? I had... We had no idea what to expect. And she just exceeded any possible expectation I could have of her. She's like the warmest, most hospitable, most bubbly, kind, generous person. Yeah, I totally agree. I was like, why why are we driving out to New Jersey for the Brooklyn bar? But she ended up being lovely. And it was like probably one of the best days of of this whole experience for me. So anyway, I am so excited for everyone to get to know Sheila and then Ruthie. So without further ado, let's head to Ginger's. Let's go. Woo! <laughs> This is Cruising, a podcast about the last lesbian bars in the U.S. My name is Sarah Gabrielli, and I'm traveling to each one of them with my two friends and chosen family. This is stop number 21, Ginger's. I hope we're in the right place. I'm kind of nervous. It's mid-July of 2022, one of those hot and sticky New York days. But today, Rachel and I are getting out of the city and back on the road. Well, sort of. Private drive. Residents only. We're meeting up with Sheila Franey, the owner of Ginger's Bar in Brooklyn. Sheila Bobila. Even though we both live a short bike ride away from Ginger's, Sheila lives a little over an hour outside of the city in New Jersey. And she kind of insisted we come there to interview her. This is like a campground. Yeah, it literally is. We were picturing a typical New Jersey suburb, but with about 10 minutes left on the GPS, we found ourselves turning onto a narrow dirt road along a lake. Whoa! A lake! Oh my gosh! I think she lives on the lake, actually. Let's go swimming. Oh my god, wait. If we went swimming with Sheila, oh my god. Sheila should have told us to bring our bathing suits. Wait, she actually should have. We're mostly joking around here about the swimming. If she offers, if she like says that we should. Go swimming? If she says anything about swimming, I'm not going to say no. Sheila has been running Ginger's for over 20 years. And while we've seen her around the bar on occasion, this will be our first time really talking to her. All right, let's go. When we arrive, Sheila immediately comes out to the driveway to greet us each with a hug. Hi. Hi. I'm so excited that we came all the way here. This is gorgeous. I'm really excited that you're here. Obviously, you you can tell Sheila is Irish from talking to her, but you can also tell just by looking at her. With her freckly skin and curly red hair, That's how the bar got its name. I'm full ginger, baby. (laughs) Yeah. But people think that your name is Ginger. I know. 
Yeah. And do you, do you just like, you just go by, do you answer to Ginger? Of course. Yeah. I say, yeah, like, oh, that's Ginger. me. Sheila exudes warmth from the moment you meet her. She's small and excitable with a big dimply smile. As it turns out, she invited us to New Jersey, not for her own convenience, but because she really wanted to host us. It's just like different, you know? Like I said to the other fella, uh, Brendan. Brendan is Sheila's business partner. I said, I want the girls to come to my house. My little cabin. Yeah. Sheila bought her little effing cabin about 20 years ago. And since then, she's put a lot of work into it. I, I do a lot of the work. I built this all these out here. I put all these windows in. I I like to do all that stuff. Yeah. She built a sunroom and a large deck overlooking the lake. There's an herb garden out in the yard. And the original outhouse has been replaced with an indoor bathroom. Though there is one rule for using the toilet. If it's yellow, let it mellow. If it's brown, flush it down. The lake has become a bit of a lesbian haven over the past few decades. It all started with another Brooklyn lesbian named Pat Harrison, and then... Then Liz got from Pat Harrison. Mm -hmm. Then I came here because of Liz. I met her at the bar. Then I bought here, and then I introduced Dan O'Neill to it. And for many reasons, we felt right at home there. For one thing, Sheila is a wonderful host. She had a table full of snacks for us, ready to go. Tipperary cheese, Tipperary. This is from Wexford. But these wow. cheeses are good. This is a cheese with wine in it. And then I made some guac and the bread is from Brooklyn. Sheila even sent us home with some of her homegrown herbs. Thank you so much. Oh this gosh. is so, so beautiful. Mm. Like, this is so nice. Sheila says it's an Irish thing. I'm making a little because when you come to an Irish house, you always have to have yeah. something to eat and drink. Sheila picked out a bottle of red wine and brought us over to a display cabinet filled with glasses of all different shapes, sizes, and patterns. I'm the person that when their mothers die, I have all the glasses. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I said, you can't throw them out. They're yeah, your mothers. You can't throw them out is sort of a motto of Sheila's. Her cabin is tastefully decorated with eclectic treasures collected over the years. There's the stained glass window hanging in the sunroom. That came from a house in Sheepshead Bay. They were thrown in the dumpster and I said, what are you doing with that? Two old lanterns from the New York City subway, one red and one blue. This was to stop, this was to go. What I put in there, I put in um, oil for the mosquitoes. Everything in Sheila's cabin has a story and everything is meaningful to her. Like the old teddy bear in Sheila's bedroom. I remember when I was seven years of age, I was downtown. And I, I was never into dolls because I was always playing football or whatever. And I said, oh, I want that teddy bear. And she said, I don't have any money. And she put it away and put money down on it and I got it for Christmas. How, how old are you? Six or seven, maybe. Oh, my gosh. And you still have it. That, that's she beautiful. saved it for me. She threw out shit like all over the house. She saved it. I went home and she said I kept it. Sheila was born in Wexford, Ireland, a rural town southeast of Dublin. She's the youngest of seven kids. See, everybody in Ireland at that time, 50s, 60s, 70s, I was born in 66, were poor. So we never knew that there was any difference. You know, here's how my family were. My father worked. He was a butcher. So we always had good meat. Everyone Sheila knew was struggling financially, so... They all helped each other out. Everybody was blue collar, working, doing what they had to do. And we all shared. 
Like we had loads of meat, so we gave it to our friends, had loads of vegetables. They gave us the vegetables. And that's how we operated. And it was really quite okay. But when Sheila was 15, her dad got sick and things got even harder for her family. Yeah, it was awful when he died. It was really bad. We got even poorer. Well, my mother was 45 and he was 49. Maybe he got sick and he had a brain tumor when he died within six months. He was gone. So that was devastating because my mother had seven kids and she never worked. Sheila's mom, also named Sheila, held the family together. She got jobs. She worked for the the county council for a while. And then she, in Wexford, we're very famous for our um, strawberries. We have the best ever. And there was huge, big strawberry um, um, farms and stuff. So she ran a few of those every summer. And um, she did whatever she needed to do, you know. She's Sheila Frenny. As close as they were, as a kid, Sheila never really knew how her mom felt about homosexuality. It wasn't even, like, talked about. This might have been the case in Wexford, a small rural town, but in other parts of the country, the Irish queer community was making itself known. The, the first, I suppose, gay rights movement in the Republic of Ireland was established in, in 1974. This is Patrick McDonough, author of the book Gay and Lesbian Activism in the Republic of Ireland. Not so much demonstration in the streets. It was much more kind of trying to engage with the media, engage with the political class uh, and provide an outlet for individuals to meet. One of the main things that they fought for was to decriminalize sexual activity between males. Much like sodomy laws in the United States, it was a crime in Ireland for gay men to engage in sexual activity, which wouldn't be decriminalized until 1993. We need to remember as well, in Ireland for much of the 20th century, you know, the Catholic Church was, was very dominant, um, that the political class would have been, you know, very socially conservative as well. I mean, you know, contraceptives were illegal in Ireland until 1979 and even then in 1979 there was laws introduced but you it was still very restrictive you had to be married so it's that context of you know a very strict approach to sexuality. And this conservative culture fostered a lot of hate and violence towards the queer community in Ireland. 1982 was a particularly difficult year for the gay community in Ireland. So in, in January 1982, Charles Self was brutally killed in his home. He was a, a gay man. Um, the subsequent police investigation afterwards saw estimates of about 1,500 gay men being questioned by the guards. And, you know, in many cases, the guards turned up at their workplaces or their homes and outed many men and it was a really um, stressful time for the, the gay community and then the more high, most high profile killing was of Declan Flynn in September 1982 um, Declan was in Fairview Park and he was um, brutally killed by five youths who openly admitted that they were there to, to clear the park of, of queers that's what that's the, what they said um, and they they beat him up um, and they were found guilty of manslaughter, but the judge gave him a suspended sentence. So they walked free. So that naturally, I suppose, generated considerable anger within the, the gay community. Um, and it was the first time, I suppose, that numbers of, of, of LGBTQ plus individuals actually took to the streets to 
condemn and call out the the treatment of of the gay community and, and, and women in Ireland. Of course, I wanted to know more about the women in the gay rights movement and what the experience might have been like for Sheila, a young queer woman at the time. A very significant moment for lesbian women in Ireland was February 1980 when the first lesbian woman, Joni Crone, appeared on national TV. It would have been on the, the most watched show at the time, The Late Late Show. It's the longest running chat show in the world. One more to go. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the next item has caused us considerable trouble this week. So Joni um, appeared on, on that TV and she spoke about being a, a, a lesbian and it was a... And uh, many Irish lesbian women will recall that and the significance and the, the the positive impact it had on them in terms of realizing that they they were not alone and even just the terminology about of a lesbian you know because homosexuality would often be you know very much male focused or you know when you say the word homosexual it was often you you think of gay men and, and not lesbian women. But as I mentioned, Sheila herself seemed to have been rather removed from the gay rights movement in Ireland. She was just a kid in the 70s, barely a teenager in the 80s. So Sheila didn't really know the first thing about queerness until she went on a school trip to France. I'll never forget it. We were at a disco and I was sitting in the bathroom and this woman came in and walked right up to me and kissed me. And then I knew. I said, oh, that's what it is. Sitting up on the sink in the bathroom and she walked right in, in between my legs and kissed me and then just looked at me and left. Had you been like flirting? Never seen her. <laughs> Never seen her no more. And I thought one day she was going to come and find me in Ireland. I was like maybe 13 or something, 12 or 13. And I thought she was really old. So she was probably 20. We're not condoning this stranger's behavior, but she probably thought Sheila was much older than 12 or 13. I was like, oh, I was smoking a cigarette. I was okay, like, so <laughs> But Sheila wouldn't come out to her family until she was actually old enough to smoke cigarettes. She was 20. And I remember saying to my mother when I came out to her, I went home and I said, I'm, you know, a lesbian. As it turns out, despite the conservative climate in Ireland, Sheila Sr. was totally accepting of homosexuality, especially when it came to her youngest daughter. She said, I just worry that you, you might get, you know, beaten up or, you know, just be careful. And I said to her, the only thing I want you to do for me is to be proud of me and always talk about me. And she said, absolutely. And she always did. Sheila's mom seems like a particularly special lady. She always supported her kids, no matter what life threw at them. Like when Sheila decided to move out of Ireland in 1988. I remember having my 21st birthday and going, I'm out of here. And I knew my mother needed me, but I was just like, and she looked at me and I said, I have to go. And she said, go, I'll be fine. So with her mom's blessing, Sheila and her first girlfriend, Carmel, left home. The couple lived in Iceland for a year and worked on a fishing boat. They spent some time in the UK, and then in 1989, they got American visas and one-way tickets to the United States. And we arrived in JFK at 11 o'clock at night. So we went to the customer service desk and asked them a cheap, close hotel to stay until the morning. And we got a, a bus came and picked us up, and we went, and we were in Queens somewhere, and it was like a motel. And it was full of prostitutes. It was awful. You know, the nightstand it had blood and everything. It was disgusting. So we just sat on our backpacks and fell asleep. 
But Sheila was never scared, always excited. What are you afraid of when you're 22? Jesus, help me. But Sheila wouldn't open Ginger's until she was in her 30s. And in the interim, she did a lot of moving around to New York, working in and out of the service industry, and diligently saving money. Even from Iceland, I worked on a fishing boat in Iceland as well. Um, and I made a ton of money there. And I start saving from there. You know, I always knew, even though I grew up poor, I always knew that I had to take care of myself. So I knew that I had to do something that was going to provide for my life, you know. There was a brief period of time once Sheila was in the U.S. where she actually couldn't continue working. And then I was illegal here for four years because my visa ran out. So what did Sheila do? I bought a motorhome and I put in the freezer marijuana and off I went with three girls across the States for a year. In 1992, the Morrison visa was introduced. 55,000 Morrison visas were given out annually by lottery for three years in the early 1990s. And 16,000 of those visas were reserved for people from Ireland. But even if you were Irish, the competition to win one of those visas was steep. When they were applying for it then, they told people they can put as many applications as they want. People were flying down with lorry loads and plane loads and car loads. You know what I did? I sent him one application. And with that one application amongst tens of thousands of others... I won the lottery. The Morrison visa. One application. Today, Sheila holds dual citizenship in Ireland and the U.S. She's still the only member of her family in the States. The rest are back in Ireland. And I really miss my family. And I debate whether I should go... I wanted to always go and live with my mom again at some stage. Either she lived here or I'd live there, but that didn't happen. Back in the 90s, she did have a cousin living in the States for a while. He was also gay, and the cousins would often go out together. One particular evening stands out to Sheila. She brought her cousin to an old lesbian bar called Julie's. So it was on the Upper East Side, and we went to Julie's, and they wouldn't let him in. And I was like, but he's gay. And they wouldn't let him in. So I was very upset about that in my own head and said, I have to open up a good bar where we're all accepted. Of course, there are so many factors that can play into a person's career path. But this was as good of a turning point as any. It really stuck with Sheila, even to this day. I always say I'm a lesbian owner. But we don't discriminate against anybody. And I think... That was the reason why I opened it, Ginger's, because I was discriminated against with my cousin, who was male. So I just want everybody to feel comfortable. And I have, I'm the youngest of seven siblings. I want them to come and feel comfortable. I want you to bring your mother there and come feel comfortable, you know. And that's the kind of place that I want. Mm. That we can all have our families there if we need be. That incident with her cousin was back in 1990. And eventually, in 2000, after working and saving up for a decade, Sheila could afford to invest in opening a bar of her own. She settled on a spot in Park Slope in Brooklyn on 5th Street and 5th Ave. Park Slope is also just really special, not only in New York, but in the world. This is Jack Geeseking, author of A Queer New York. Is known at some point, and still to many people carry it uh, in their minds or their hearts, as as a lesbian neighborhood. 
um, a queer neighborhood. And there's so few of those. Um, and to think about like women having a neighborhood or women having a huge structure of services and businesses that they went to. It was around the 1970s when queer women really started flocking to Park Slope. It has a park. There was a big soft, there were always baseball diamonds, right? So there's softball teams and there's different, there's uh, Brooklyn. Lesbians are playing sports in this park, right? So people are migrating in and out weekly. Um, someone decides to put the feminist bookstore um, on right on Flatbush Avenue at the top of, of Park Slope. And so that's going to draw a huge number of people. By the 1980s, there were all kinds of businesses catering to queer women in Park Slope. There was a women's gym, a co-op, cafes and yoga studios, not just bars. And you know there are places to go and places to hang out. And so people really start to congregate there. Uh, and they keep telling word of mouth, they tell their friends. This sort of lesbian migration definitely played a part in the gentrification of the neighborhood. But when Sheila was first opening Ginger's, her block wasn't like the Park Slope Jack describes. To be clear, today the area is very lively, queer, and totally gentrified. But when Ginger's first opened back in 2000... Uh, Fifth Avenue, where Ginger's is, was not gentrified uh, at that time. And uh, it was uh, really uh, empty... Um, and the streets were pretty dark at night. It was kind of edgy, you know, to be in a, in a, like a, a version of New York where there aren't a lot of people on the street, um, is not something most people can imagine. In the early days of Ginger's, it was common for the bar to get threatening phone calls. We had the phone on the wall, which is still there. That was our phone. And it would ring probably two or three times a week with a person on the other end saying, we're going to come kill all you faggots and we're going to shoot you all and we're going to do this and we're going to... So it was scary. At the time, some of the neighborhood bars were still mafia-run. But that wasn't a problem for Sheila. Quite the opposite. See, what I did when I came to the neighborhood, I got to know all the older people. I went to the local bar, which was called Jackie's, where all those people hung out, and I became friends with them. And I said, if you have a problem, you come talk to me about it. Because... You know, I'm here, I'm human, I'm normal. You know, I uh, play as we're queer, but that's who we are. But um, I did, and they, they became, they kind of protected me a little bit, you know what I mean? And eventually, the threatening phone call stopped. Sheila thinks her new mafia friends had something to do with it. They would look out for me. So I connected with them because, you know, I was like, well, I like these people. They, if I get on their side, they'll be nice to me. But they like me too, you know, because I was, it's what you see is what you get. And they would only ever really ask for this one thing in return. They always try to get me to put uh, the gambling machines in. Just have to put a wall there, put the gambling machines in there. And I said, I'm not getting into that. I'm not doing it. And they were like, torture me about that. And they were like, well, now you have to do it. You know, and I'm like, no, I'm not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, they wanted those gambling machines in there. And I was like, mm-mm. Maybe next year. I would always say that too. Maybe next year. <laughs> Just for him to get off my back because that's where they made their money too. Since moving to the U.S., Sheila had remained close with her family. If they were accepting of her lifestyle before Ginger's, once she became a bar owner, they were downright thrilled. 
especially her mom. My mother was the business. She really was. She was just like so proud of you and gingers and she would tell everybody about it and oh all the time giving people the address go see her when you go over and <laughs> i would have people that would be like oh jesus who are these and she there they are your mother told me to come here <laughs> prior to opening gingers sheila's mom and two of her brothers came to the u.s to help with cleaning and renovating the bar and sheila's mom would continue to visit gingers for years to come she took a lot of pride in it. And they used to smoke in gingers at the time. And she'd be going around cleaning the ashtrays and talking to everybody. And, you know, all my friends say, can we have your mother for the weekend? Because she was so cool. She was? She was so cool. And she never judged anybody. And she would always say, if if you said something bad, she said, there's somebody's kid. Don't, don't say that. She was very open about everything, you know. She was really cool. I wish she was here. Sheila's mom passed away about three years ago, but... She lives on in trinkets and pictures all around the lake house. This is my mother over here. Sheila was her name. And of course, in memory. You know what my mother always told me? What? And you have to remember this in life. She said, no matter how poor you are, Sheila, always make the best of what you have. And I always do that. I always, you know, make things nice. It doesn't have to be all money and expensive and all that stuff. Just make it nice. So we started to understand where Sheila got her knack for collecting and decorating. It wasn't just the items themselves that might remind her of her mom, but the act of restoring them and making her house into a home. We would soon come to realize that some of this had rubbed off on Sheila's partner of seven years, Gail. She found two of these. I don't know. She's coming up to drive with the other one. I said, this is perfect. Just can sit on my pulleys in the boat. Stop. Gail had been out for most of the afternoon. When she eventually got back, she squeezed through the door with two giant inner tubes, fully inflated. How are you? I'm good. I bought toys for you. That's so fun. toys on the road. <laughs> right on the road, Bob, when you make the turn to the Y. They were in the middle of the street, so I stopped. I put my hazard lights on. And here's the kicker. As much as we had joked and fantasized about swimming in the lake... That's exactly what happened. Sheila kind of insisted, and we weren't going to say no. We were like, should we have brought our bathing suit? Did you? No, but I'll go in. I'll go in my clothes. (laughs) Yeah. I I have something for you to wear. I think it's found a boat ride and everything. So Sheila took us out on her little electric boat. Uh, Here we go. This is the speedboat on the lake. This is the fastest boat. This is the fastest it goes. Because we don't have any petrol, gasoline or anything. And we pulled up to a dock floating in the middle of the lake. Does it feel good? It feels so good. Like, it didn't take a second. Right? Isn't it beautiful? It's so good. Get in! (laughs) Sheila! Oh my god. Wow. <laughs> For Sheila, this was just a vacation spot at first. She would still primarily live and work out of Brooklyn. I would spend two days here, and then I'd work for the rest of the time, sometimes one day. But now that things is the pandemic, I spend a lot more time. I go in and out two or three times a week. So during COVID, the lake became Sheila and Gail's primary residence. As you can imagine, the lake was an idyllic place to spend quarantine. But back in Brooklyn, like so many other bars and restaurants, 
things were not looking as good for gingers. I was doing fine until the pandemic. And then when I got shut down, everything was depleted, of course. After 20 years of business and a year of sitting shuttered, gingers needed some work. I put a lot of money into gingers when I opened it. And it needed a lot of money again. You know, to redo what we needed to do, like the back garden, the floors, new AC, you know, all that stuff. So, you know, you're talking about a few hundred thousand. This is a big part of why Ginger's took so long to reopen. Other bars in the area started opening during the summer of 2020, and then another wave seemed to open again the next spring. But Ginger's sat empty. We would ask around to see if any other Park Slope lesbians knew what was going on with Ginger's. But no one seemed to know if it would ever reopen at all. In Sheila's mind, there was never any doubt. I was never giving up that place. It didn't, num- it, it ma- didn't matter what would happen. I was not giving it up. But a year in quarantine had changed her perspective. She realized she couldn't keep running everything on her own. You know, when you stop, you realize, whoa. <laughs> so that was my, my thought was, if I get this place up and running again, I need to have somebody to do the running for a while because I'm kind of burnt out. The only other way was for me to get a partner because I don't have it in me to do another 20 years, you know, so I had to get somebody younger. And then Brendan Donahoe came along. I was looking, well, you know, queer person, um, work in hospitality, have done for many years. um, And I have always wanted my own queer space. Sheila and Brendan first met through a mutual friend in early 2021, and they immediately had a connection. I suppose what gravitated myself and Sheila towards each one another was that um, we had a common understanding. We're from the same country. We understand what it is to leave a country because you're not necessarily accepted as a queer person. Uh, We gelled. At the time, Ginger's had been closed for about a year. Sheila was in the process of finding a business partner and Brendan expressed an interest. Because I live in the neighborhood. I've been to Ginger's many, many times before um, with my queer soccer team. And I love the place. And I think that it's a city treasure and it needs to be protected at every every given corner and angle because it's too easy things like this get lost. For Sheila, it was most important that her partner shared a vision for Ginger's, that they didn't want to change it and could handle some of the heavy lifting that she'd grown tired of. And I interviewed quite a lot of people. I definitely did want a woman. It just didn't work. And it was okay. He's definitely want to keep it the same. He wants to keep the lesbians. He wants to provide more space for people to do what they need to do. And that's what I liked. And I said, perfect. And we connect. You know, he's very type A. I'm very like, so it works. We met up with Brendan at the bar itself. So he was able to show us some of their recent renovations. Most notably, the back patio, which is now a big wooden deck with benches and picnic tables along the perimeter. The two sides is that initially for me, I was like, I've just always loved the idea of having a, like a soccer field. We have like the little um, dugouts on the side. That's exactly where this design came from. Leave it open in the middle. Inside Ginger's, there's a long bar and high top tables in the front room. But the main event is really in the back room, the pool table. It's free to play, and people sign up for games on a chalkboard hanging on the wall. 
The pool table is such a community conversation space for so many people that we'll never get rid of it. And I am also an avid pool player. Um, but it's a meeting space, like it's a conversation piece. You don't necessarily need to know somebody to have a painting of a pool with them. But if I'm sitting on the other side of the room, would you like to play pool together? It's the easiest thing, especially in a space that is um, as unique as Ginger's uh, in terms of who you will meet when you walk through the door. With Brendan's help, Ginger's eventually reopened in October of 2021. It was a long time coming, but... Sheila couldn't have been happier. Oh, my God. I was crying all the time. I was so excited. I knew it was going to happen, but I didn't know when. You know, people would say, I said, yeah, we're going to be back. And I always kept that positive feeling of, I'm not giving this up. I've worked way too hard to give this up for women, you know, for people who loves to come there. Cruising will be back after a short break. Ever wonder what you're going to do with your life while you wait for the next season of Cruising? Well, my name is Sarah Gabrielli, and I have an answer for you. It's called joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash cruisingpod. Starting at just $4 a month, you can get access to all of our bonus episodes, full interviews, and other behind-the-scenes content. Our patrons are also the first to know about upcoming events and updates on our much-anticipated Season 2. So if any of this interests you or you just want to support cruising, head to patreon.com slash cruisingpod. That's patreon.com slash cruisingpod. Or click the link in our episode description and help us build a cruising community. Stay tuned at the end of this episode for more insight from the cruising team and an update on next season. There's only one person that could maybe, possibly, begin to rival the pool table as the most iconic fixture of Ginger's. It's not Sheila, it's not Brendan, but a well-known Ginger's regular. Uh, My name is Ruth Borey. If you've ever been to Ginger's, you probably know Ruthie. Or you've at least seen her shooting pool in the back room. She's small and soft-spoken, with short hair usually tucked under a baseball cap. Ruthie's been coming to Ginger's every night after work since 2012, which is around the same time Jen started frequenting Ginger's. So they've become buds over the years. How you doing, baby? Nice hat. Thank you. Good to see you. How was work? Good. Yeah, it smelled good. So how did you two first meet? Right here. Right here. Yeah, but you just started, like, playing pool together? Yeah, we all played pool. This is the older crowd here. We're the older crowd. Points to Jack. Yeah, going back. Okay. We had stepped out onto the sidewalk to find a quiet spot to talk. And, as usual, Ruthie's maroon minivan was parked right in front of the bar. This is my car. Why don't you sit in the in the car? I'm fine with standing. I'll, anything for a quiet spot, so it I'll just quiet. stand. Yeah. So Ruthie sat in the passenger seat, door open, feet dangling onto the curb, and the three of us stood around her. She held a package of unsalted rice cakes in her hand during the whole interview, sometimes stealing bites in between questions. Yeah, what are those? Rice pond crackers. Yeah, right. Okay, got it. No salt, no nothing. Really tasty. No salt. Um. (laughs) Ruthie lives right near Ginger's in Park Slope 
but she travels everywhere in this minivan. In fact, Ruthie spent pretty much her whole life in this very neighborhood, from the time she was two years old in 1949. This is my home. My mother moved to uh, Brooklyn on Cambridge and Fulton, right where the post office is. And that's been my neighborhood ever since. I never left my neighborhood here. From the age of two. Born in the Bronx. It was at that apartment in the Bronx that Ruthie remembers having her first crush on a girl. I think I was gay from the age of two years old. She can picture it vividly. At two years old, sitting on the stoop of her old apartment next to another toddler. So I had this play guitar, right? And this little girl on the side of me, you know, she was little like I was too, you know. I didn't know how to explain it yet because I didn't talk, <laughs> you know. But I knew that she was pretty and that whatever the hell I was playing on the damn thing, I was looking at her like to say, damn, she's pretty. <laughs> and we were babies. At two, Ruthie certainly couldn't express these feelings. In fact, Ruthie didn't talk at all until the age of six. And my mother wondered why I wasn't talking. I reached the age of three, I still not talking. Four, I still not talking. Five, I still wasn't talking. Ruthie had been born two months premature. At seven months pregnant, her mom took a nasty fall in the snow and they had to induce labor. This was in 1947. They had to rush her to the hospital to get me out of seven months and put me in an incubator and do the operation. They put three, uh, three different pins in her leg. It's not uncommon for kids born prematurely to have developmental delays. And Ruthie still wasn't talking at six years old when she met Mr. Roberts. He was the super for her family's apartment in Brooklyn. It used to teach kids a lot of different games, and all the kids be waiting for him after he cleans the building so he can teach him these games. He knew lots of games to teach the children in the building that we lived in. So I'd be waiting and whatnot for him to come out and finish cleaning the building. Then he said, come on, kids. He was a Spanish super. So he would say, vamos, come on, like that, you know. And I would run right along with the rest of the kids. He would turn around and say, no, not you, because you're a dummy. Like that. This exact scenario happened three times. And then I watch him play and teach the kids. But he would turn around to see if I, I was angry. I was like a little kid, you know, you know, looking at him because he didn't let me play with the kids. But I just didn't know how to talk yet. Ruthie might not have been talking yet, but she was certainly listening. So I used to hear my father and mother argue. And my mother would say, oh, no, you're going to give me the money for my kids. Like that, my mother didn't play, okay? You're going to give me the money for my kids. My mother would always say, oh, no, with her finger up like that. Give me the money. <laughs> Spanish, you know. So the fourth time, Ruthie tries to play with Mr. Roberts and the other kids. I'm going downstairs, and all the kids are waiting for Mr. Mr. Roberts to come downstairs, finish the building so he can teach more. And I'm looking at him, and he's making me more angry. And then, as he said, come on, kids, come on, I got some new games for you. I would look at him like that and I start to run. Mr. Roberts turns around again to tell Ruthie she couldn't join them. I looked at him, you know, and I said, oh, no, like that. He turned around. He looked at me. Well, he had a smile on his face. Then he said, Bente, and he took my hand. And from then on, Ruthie could talk. 
He yeah. was actually trying to make me tall. So he made me angry enough to eventually. He did that. Yes, he did. Yeah. But by then, Ruthie had already been placed in a special education class because of her speech delays. My mother said that I wasn't slow, but they put me in there. And I watched all the different children in the class very, very slow, but I didn't feel I was slow. You know, I felt very active, but my mother said, please have my child retested again. The school did have her retested, but we're talking about a black female student in the 1950s. Back then, it was a lot of prejudice going on. Okay, Puerto Ricans, blacks, and whatnot. So they didn't tell my mother if I passed or what, but I think I passed. The school never even bothered to share her test results. So still, Ruthie was kept in the special ed classroom. So I stayed there 16 years of my life. And I got criticized. They talked about us. And as I move on to junior high school, high school, I will hear a lot of them at lunchtime. Look, look at their slow class. Look at, look, look at them. Look at them. They'd be laughing. And as I would turn around and look at them, I felt like I wanted to jump over the table and whip their ass. <laughs> but, you know, I had to be cool. <laughs> and I just look at them always hearing these different things about how they talked about the people that were slow. But I don't think I was slow. And so, fed up with being treated like this, Ruthie quit school at 16 years old. She never did graduate high school. I managed to make it even though I didn't have a school diploma. I worked factories packing hats, you know, to make it out here. At 17, Ruthie came out to her parents as gay. And I looked up at my mother and father and I said, yes, I am. And I'm not changing for nobody. And my father tried to punch me, you know. But my mother grabbed me and he told me, go somewhere to Queens and do that nasty shit, you all. Like that. I just looked at him, but my mother said, don't you touch my daughter. She grabbed me like that. This is something Ruthie and Sheila have in common. Fiercely supportive and loving mothers. She was. She watched over me, even though I told her that I was and I told her, and I'm not changing for nobody. So in 1964, at 17 years old, Ruthie moved out. She didn't leave on very good terms with her dad. He said, and don't make that mistake to come back. When he said that to me, that's always stayed in my head. Now, I didn't want to come back because I thought he was going to start with me, you know? So Ruthie took this to heart. She would never let herself move back in with her parents, even when she had nowhere else to go. And I was homeless for a while. You know, I can tell you the places that I... Look at today, where I slept my, put my head for green. There's a house that was really nice on the stoop. And I slept in, you know, the Hoint, Skimmer Hoint Station? You know, the, that bench that's still there, the benches? I slept there. And then I rode the trains back and forward all the way, the GG train all the way up, all the way back down. As Ruthie mentioned, she eventually got by working odd jobs and in factories. And then, in 1978, she landed herself a steady job as a nurse's aide. I worked in a hospital for a long time. 14 years in Kingsbrook Jewish. And Ruthie put in a lot of hours during her time working at the hospital. You know, every time they, I go home, I say, Ruthie, can you come in and work overtime for us, please? I would come. I made so much money working overtime. Yes, I did. I was tired, but I went. And then one day in the early 90s, we're not exactly sure when. I was cleaning a patient. 
and getting ready to clean another patient and the nurse talked to me in such a manner with disrespect. Hey, hey, you. And I have my ID here where she can name me Miss Bory. You know what I mean? Miss Bory, can you come with me? Ruthie might be soft-spoken, but from the time she learned to talk, she had a knack for speaking up when it really counted. And then I turned around and said, let me tell you one goddamn thing. And don't you ever talk to me like that. You see this ID? You address me as that. Then I turned around and said, what is it you want me to pass you? <laughs> At work the next day, Ruthie was called into the office. There's the administrator, there's the supervisor, and there's the head nurse, all three of them sitting there. And I'm by myself sitting. And I said, what's all this about? Like that, oh, we want to know what you said to Miss Forster the other day. Like that, what I said to her is between her and I. She said, no, but we need to know because we're going to write you up. I said, after all these years working and coming in back and forward for overtime, you're going to write me up? And I never started a problem with any of y'all? Like that, and I looked at all of them, the administrator, the supervisor, and the head nurse. I backed my chair up. And again, she managed to speak up. And I said, F you, all of y'all, like that. And they said, where you going, Miss Bory? Where you going? I said, F y'all. I went and cleaned my locker out and everything and made it nice and neat. Ruthie had saved up a lot of money working overtime at the hospital. She knew she would be okay financially, but it was still emotional. And I said, did I just leave my 14-year-old job? I was crying also, you know, from the anger that I had from them, you know, doing what they were going to do to me, write me up and all that, you know? So did I just leave my job, my pension, my social security, all that? And so the next morning, she got herself out of bed and went for a walk. Just walking all the way down to Flatbush and um, Bergen and Dean. As I was walking, I'm looking in the stores and saying, yeah, what do I do now? And then I see these lady barbers working in this barbershop called Canaps. You know, I looked, but I didn't want them to see me like if I was being a disturbance. So I walked to the side and I just peeked to see how they were (laughs) cutting hair. And I said, damn, those girls can cut. As a kid, Ruthie had always loved going to the barbershop. Daddy used to take me to the barbershop when I was three years old, right? And he would take me with him. I was little, you know, and he'd be talking with all the guys in the barbershop. And I saw how nice they used to cut. And it was just like observing. I couldn't say, wow, you look nice, because I didn't talk. But I did say something inside here and say, wow, the way they left. You know what I mean? They all look sort of nice leaving from all that hair that they had, you know. You know, I, I think that's what started it. And cutting hair was actually one of Ruthie's odd jobs back before the hospital. I was like 17, 18 to pay my $15 rent that I had. I had a nice little studio. And I would tell the guys that I played basketball with, come upstairs, you know, I'll cut your hair for 350 Like then they would come up and I would cut their hair. It was just one way, all off. <laughs> I didn't know nothing else about how to make it style like yours and stuff. I didn't know. I just cut it all off like they were going to the army. And I shaped them up and whatnot. I said 350 And I ended up paying my $15 rent. So as she was passing by this barber shop and watching the girls work inside... Something told me to go inside and um, get a haircut. During her cut, Ruthie started chatting with her barber. What school did you go to to learn how to cut hair? 
So we didn't go to school to learn how to cut hair. The owner that, you know, owns this, he has three other barbershops. And he teaches you for nine weeks to learn how to cut hair. I said, really? Can you give me his number? So he gave me his number. Ruthie soon connected with the owner, Bill, and they got along really well. Bill became somewhat of a mentor to her. So I said, I would like to learn how to cut hair. So he had 20 chairs on Bedford Avenue and Fulton Street. And he would teach for nine weeks everybody that wanted to learn how to cut hair. So he taught me. He taught me everything that he can possibly teach me. And he said that I was going to become an artist in hair. And I looked at him, you crazy? You don't see how nervous I am cutting this person's hair? You teaching me? <laughs> but Bill was right. It's just something of, I, I love doing things with my hands. And when it comes to hair, I can cut your hair. Comes to barbering, comes to cutting hair, making stuff like this, I can do all that. Today, Ruthie owns a shop of her own, Ruthie's Neighborhood Barber Shop. It's in Park Slope, of course, right around the corner from where she first learned to cut. When I think about my life history, I said, damn, this man around the corner taught me how to cut hair, and I have my own barber shop around the corner, and I'm on St. Mark's. And Flatbush is right there. And when you walk down the block, that was Canap's Barbershop. When Ruthie first opened her shop in 1996, she had a beautiful apartment on Atlantic Ave and a budding social life. But everything changed in 2003 when Ruthie's mom fell ill. And nobody wanted to take turns, you know, taking care of mommy. Even though Ruthie had three older siblings, the responsibility of taking care of their mom fell entirely onto her. So I... Uh, I moved with mommy, you know, and um, I started taking care of her. I took her everywhere with me. I took her to the casino. She was in the shop every day with me, you know, with the home attendant. I took care to the bitter end and also watched her die and touched her face while she was dead. Ruthie's mom passed in 2012. Not only had she lost her mom, but in the time she was taking care of her, Ruthie had lost her apartment and pretty much all of her friends, though they didn't sound like very good friends to begin with. My friends, they left. You know, they stopped talking with me because I didn't go hang out with them. I kept telling them I have to take care of my mother, and I can't go out like that. She needs me to take care of her. Ruthie suddenly had all of this extra time on her hands, and honestly, she was lonely. Everybody that came to get a haircut, they used to tell me, go to Ginger's, go to Ginger's. Go, go to Ginger's, it's nice. Go to Ginger's, it's nice, like that. You know, I just looked at them, but I never went. You know, because I had to take care of my mother. So when Ruthie's mom passed, Ruthie remembered the advice she'd gotten over and over again. To go to Ginger's. After all, it's only a mile down the road from her shop. So then when I finally came over, it was a Sunday. I didn't know anybody. You know, I came inside and I introduced myself. I said, I'm Ruthie, you know, first time here. Then I sat right there in the front, right there. It was right in the front. And I was just watching everybody. I, I really didn't know anybody. And once she started coming to Ginger's, Ruthie never stopped. Yeah. So you come, you come every day? Every day. After work. But the interesting thing about Ruthie, a person who spent every evening at the same bar for the past 10 years, she's sober. I don't drink. I don't touch anything. I'm just a plain old square. She tried alcohol once as a teenager. Well, when I was young, the age of 18, 19, 
my I started hanging out with my friends and they started showing me different places to go and hang out with them. And said, here, try this vodka and orange juice, you know. And I tried it, you know, and I, you know, what it did to me, they didn't know why I was laughing. They gave me a little bit of reefer and I'm laughing and laughing and carrying on. But then after I got sober and whatnot, I said, I don't want this. Y'all, I love y'all. Y'all want to do it, y'all do it. But I didn't, um, I didn't mess with anything. I was just plain and sober. For Ruthie, coming to Ginger's isn't about drinking. And it's not even about trying to meet someone either. Like, do you ever pick up women? Here, you just hang out. You yeah. never have? No. You ne- never, you've never met someone that you're interested in here. It hasn't happened. So what makes Ruthie want to come to Ginger's every single day? This is a warm place to me. You know what I mean? It's very warm. You know, and I meet a lot of different people. Some may have attitude. Others have nice attitudes. You know, that depends. But I love Ginger's. It must have been really tough on Ruthie while Ginger's was closed. We know she did try to help out Sheila as best she could. When the pandemic went down, she gave me some money. I just feel. I was like, oh. And it doesn't matter what it was, but she gave up. It was very kind of her. And she's a very kind woman. As you can probably tell, Ruthie is all about routine. And every Wednesday, part of Ruthie's weekly routine is shuttling people from Ginger's to another Brooklyn bar called The Woods. I'm going to The Woods tonight. I, you know. Yeah, do you go to The Woods every Wednesday? Yeah. We used to go every Wednesday. We're thinking about going tonight, too. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, I want, I want to go because I always go and sit and find me a chair near the bar. I do not get up. I don't drink. I don't touch anything. The Woods isn't a queer bar, but it turns into one every Wednesday. They throw a weekly party there called Mister, which attracts a lot of queer women and non-binary folks. So we had to cap off our night with a trip to the Woods. In Ruthie's minivan, of course. Where's the rest of the book? Where's the other book? She set up a pillow for herself on the driver's seat and started rifling through a big Ziploc bag filled with loose CDs. Nice. Oh, yeah. New pillow? Yeah. We took the scenic route, past some of the streets that Ruthie grew up on, past her apartment and the barber shop. When we eventually arrived at the woods, there was an unusually long line down the block. But we actually didn't have to show our IDs. Ruthie marched us right past the line, reached over to the bouncer, and fist bumped him. And then they just let us all in because they knew Ruthie and we were with her. Inside, true to her routine, Ruthie took a seat at the bar closest to the DJ booth. She ordered her usual, a soda water with lemon and lime, and a plate of french fries, no salt. Throughout the night, there seemed to be a never-ending stream of people that knew Ruthie, and would pop by her station at the bar to say hi. Hey, Jerry, how you doing? We often refer to Ruthie as a local celebrity, but I'd always thought that was just around Ginger's. Apparently, it's all over Brooklyn. If you ask Ruthie about this, 
she'll just brush it off. What do I do? I do I ever talk a lot? You know that I don't talk a lot. She knows that. You're a local celebrity. Yeah, but you I don't do. say much. No, I you don't, don't show off and all that. I give all my love and hugs to everybody. Exactly. You know? Come on, let's join. Come on, let's have fun and stuff like that. You know, if they're going through something, I, you know, listen and I say, come on, everything's going to be good. Stop it. Get out of that. Let's move forward. Come on. Let's go play some pool. Taking pictures too. You snap all those pictures yeah, all the I time. Yeah, I do. Right? Yeah. All the Together. Yeah. That's in another camera. Back at Ginger's earlier that night, we finished our interview and headed back inside. As soon as Ruthie walked through the door, the bar erupted in applause and cheers for her. I guess they were applauding the completion of her interview, but I think what they were really saying was, welcome home, Ruthie. Let's go play pool. So I hope that you all enjoyed hearing from these lovely humans as much as we have. And, you know, there's another part of cruising that we haven't been talking about that much, which is that we've had certain questions we wanted to answer throughout this whole process. First of all, literally, what is a lesbian bar? Like, what is it? Define it. And then, of course, why are there so few of them? And the thing is that we found is that there aren't actually answers to these questions, but there are theories, which we've come across yeah. all over the country. So we started out the season with this working definition of what a lesbian bar might be which is a bar that primarily caters to queer people of marginalized genders. So has that definition changed at all for either of you along the way? I don't think that definition has changed per se. I think that something we discovered is that there are uh, all of these other spaces that we have not gotten to visit and that we have not covered that probably meet that definition. Yeah, I feel like I... I started thinking about lesbian bars as kind of like a backbone of a bar. Like it's like, you know, a bar that that has a history of being built by lesbians, catering to lesbians. And there's something about that 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 makes a space really unique and accepting and sort of a community space just because it has this history of of being a necessary space for lesbians even though now maybe they're a queer bar and you know they're defined in all these different ways but that's kind of what I think about and then obviously there are places that are newer that don't have history at all but they're still they can they're still built by lesbians and they're still like making making efforts to be inclusive does that make sense yeah I think that makes sense but it's very tough to to nail down a definition for sure. Yeah. Okay, but maybe even tougher to nail down a reason behind lesbian bar closures. I mean, I think we can all agree that there isn't just one answer to this, but rather a number of factors that have played into the decline of the lesbian bar, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, first of all, I think it's partially a cultural thing. So women are socialized in a way that makes them more likely to settle down, maybe less likely to blow a ton of money out at the bar, which is, of course, all theoretical. Like I was saying, we haven't like put out a poll or anything like that. Um, But that's one of the ideas. Is there another theory or idea that stands out to either of you that that we might have heard on the road or in our research? Yeah, I mean, and there's so there's also the fact that many historically lesbian bars have just evolved to be more inclusive. And oftentimes that means changing their language and branding. So the the word lesbian doesn't necessarily resonate with the entire community of people who are actually going to these bars and who feel at home in these spaces. And so rebranding as a queer bar or a Suffolk bar or like in the case of Henrietta Hudson, a queer human bar built by lesbians, that feels more authentic and more accurately representative of the actual community of people that exist in these spaces. And and that evolution is not a bad thing. It's a wonderful thing to see happening in our community. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like none of that is a bad thing. And the same goes for the last big theory that we always talk about, which is that lesbian bars are just less essential now than they used to be back in the 80s and 90s when there were so many more open and operating lesbian bars. Back then, that was really the only place that you could go and meet other queer women and feel safe. So of course, you're going to frequent those spaces as much as possible. Now, we're so lucky that we can be gay almost anywhere and we can meet people almost anywhere. So if you're going to go out to a bar today, you can go to a lesbian bar if there's one in your city, but you don't have to and you're not always going to do that. So that's, I'm sure, brought a decline in business to a lot of the bars. Yes, it has. But now there's another factor, which is that in the past year or so, people have realized there's a need for lesbian bars and are making an effort to open new ones. So, Rachel, do you know how many have opened since we first started working on cruising? I mean, there's there's Sports Bra in Portland, Oregon, which is a women's sports bar. It, it does not self-identify as a lesbian bar, but seems to perhaps meet our loose definition of what a lesbian bar is. Um, there's also Doc Marie's in Portland, Um, and then there's As You Are Bar, which we talked a little bit about in our DC episode, but they've opened their brick and mortar space. Um, and there's Dave's Lesbian Bar in Astoria, which has been a monthly, uh, pop-up party event, uh, but now has plans to officially open their own physical permanent location, I think, in the fall. Mm -hmm. So, of course, for season two, we're going to be covering those bars that Rachel just listed. And we're always looking into lesser known bars that might not have made it onto the original list. So there's going to be, you know, a bar or two that we've since discovered in season two. But we're actually not going to stop there at currently open and operating lesbian bars. So, Rach, do you want to explain our idea for the future of cruising? Yeah, so we kind of in making cruising have talked a lot about how in the 1980s there were these estimated 
200 plus open and operating lesbian bars throughout the United States. And that has kind of led us to start thinking about like, what were those spaces and where did they go and what happened to them? And who is still around that might have stories to share uh, about those spaces and those communities? So we are going to continue uh, to explore bars and spaces that no longer exist um, to document their stories and their histories. Yeah. The tagline is will be something like a podcast about lesbian bars lesbian bars. Lesbian bars that have existed. The history of lesbian bars. That's lesbian bars lost and found. Mm, Mm, I like that. Cruising podcast, lesbian bars lost and found. You heard it here first. That should be the name of season two. Yeah, that's why I said it. Yeah, lost and found. Cool. That's my creative contribution for season two. I'm pumped, (laughs) baby. (laughs) And I'm so excited about this idea because I didn't go into this thinking that it was going to be as much about history as it is. But that has been so cool to learn about, and and I'm glad that we're going to take this in a direction where we're really exploring queer history and documenting it. I think there's a a huge need for that. Totally. (laughs) Um. (laughs) Anyway, okay, to to wrap this up, I just I kind of just wanted to thank everyone for listening and for going on this journey with us and supporting us and caring about these spaces. Do do either of you have any messages that you want to leave leave the listeners with? I've I've been so appreciative of the support of our listeners and our family and friends and all of the people that we met on the road that opened up their you know, their space and they were vulnerable and chatted with us. To our listeners, we love you and go to your local lesbian bar. Do it. Do it. Go support them. (laughs) And that's a wrap on season one, guys. Congratulations. Damn. I didn't think we'd make it. Yes, you did. Just kidding. I always knew we would. Cruising is reported and produced by Rachel Carp, Jen McGinnity, and me, Sarah Gabrielli. Our theme song is by Joey Freeman. If you like cruising, want to support us, and get access to more content, then join our Patreon at patreon.com slash cruisingpod. You can also follow us on social media at cruisingpod or visit our website cruisingpod.com. Special thanks this week to Sheila, Ruthie, and Brendan. Thank you to Honda for sponsoring this week's episode. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts.